HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. Hi there, I'm Yom, host of Item 13, an African food podcast. I'm excited to be joining the Heritage Radio Network this year as we kick off our fourth season of the podcast. On Item 13, we cover all aspects of the African food ecosystem. You will hear West Africans squabble over who has the best jollof. Newsflash, it's Ghana. It's time to celebrate our jollof. Like we are done with comparing who and who did what. And jollof is not just about even the rice, it's about the protein that goes with it. Guests share their expertise on African food ingredients and spices. This is a region where, you know, even if you look at 18th century maps, you know, you had something called the pepper coast. Fresh and aromatic peppers. That is what distinguishes West Africa. Tips on marketing food businesses. A good way to engage your audience is to take them on that journey. You know, get them talking about this idea you have. That way you're engaging them. They're engaging with each other. And you're getting useful insights that you can then pull from and use to develop your recipe. This season, my goal is to focus on more stories outside of English-speaking West Africa. So you'll hear stories from Benin, from Uganda, Liberia, and even Haiti. You'll also hear us discuss the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement and how COVID-19 has impacted some of the businesses featured on the show. You can catch up now on previous episodes of Item 13, wherever you listen to podcasts, and join us this season as we debut on HRN. Thank you. Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Katie Kieford, host of What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights on Heritage Radio Network. Today I spoke with a number of people who were on the ground in central Iowa in August during a major weather-related disaster. If you recall, on August 10th of 2020, a highly unusual storm called a derecho blasted through the Corn Belt from South Dakota all the way to Ohio. 
It flattened nearly 14 million acres of crops, turned out the lights in central Iowa for nearly two weeks, and tore the city of Cedar Rapids apart. There were four casualties and numerous injuries to people from falling trees and flying debris. Today on The Big Food Question, we're asking, how will Iowa farmers survive the impacts of the August derecho? I first contacted Jeff Andreessen, a Michigan State meteorologist and professor of geography at Michigan State University, to understand exactly what this deadly type of storm actually is and who coined the term derecho. The term was coined by a German-American faculty member of, uh, of the University of Iowa back in the uh, late 19th century and goes all the way back then. Uh, and it, it turned out it's a... It's from the same area that I, I, the Quad Cities area I I come from originally. That's where he at least emigrated to in the U.S. But he, I don't know how a German-American comes up with a a Spanish name, but but that's, (laughs) that's the story. And it's been, been around ever, ever since. But what exactly is a derecho and how is it different from, say, a tornado or a hurricane? It is essentially a, a cluster of thunderstorms that acts in a, in a particular way and, and, they collectively lead to uh, a large, a relatively large area impacted by by severe thunderstorms, uh, and that's why that they're they're dangerous and that they're very very important uh, because they 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 impact larger areas because it's it's large numbers of thunderstorms, not just a single severe thunderstorm. They require fairly specific conditions both near the Earth's surface and then in the atmosphere loft, and and there's a couple of ingredients. You need to have a strong jet stream flow aloft uh, with relatively cool temperatures. And like this is a case with almost all thunderstorms, you also need to have some, some warm air and some water vapor to serve as a, a raw material uh, down near the surface. And those factors are key because it can allow the, the wind shear in the atmosphere with increasing winds as we go up in altitude can uh, allow the thunderstorm to basically last for much, much longer periods than would typically be the case for a, a, a well, certainly for a, a garden variety thunderstorm. And so we can actually see one of these derecho events begin uh, out in the Great Plains, as it did back on the 10th, and then move hundreds of miles to the east in only, uh, only hours. Uh, we, we just don't see that happen very often. I spoke with James Lynch, a political reporter for the Cedar Rapids Gazette, to get a sense of how that storm felt to the citizens of Cedar Rapids. His description was vivid. What I saw before I took shelter was trees just bending like you couldn't imagine they could bend. And and after the storm was over, most of them weren't bending. They were laying down. Um, the wind was, well, it was hurricane force, um, a category one or a category two hurricane, that sort of force. Debris was flying, shingles, branches, uh, traffic signs, uh, a- anything uh, you can imagine was flying around here. And it lasted for, you know, about 40 minutes, uh, whereas like a tornado usually passed through quickly. This went on and on. And it, it, yeah, I think pretty much everybody lost electricity. We were out from Monday until Sunday evening. While I was unable to secure a comment from the Iowa Farmers Bureau about the impact of the storm on the state farming, I did reach out to a favorite Iowan who you will hear from right after this short break. 
I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Why Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including 11 Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. We're about to hear from Paul Willis, the founder and director of the Nyman Ranch Pork Company, to get a sense of how some of his farming colleagues experienced the storm. It was a real kind of surprise for everybody. In fact, my friend Neil Hamilton was here from Des Moines, and he got a call from his wife, and she said, uh, you know, a large oak tree had blown down in their in their yard not not falling on their house but was leaning against another tree and he was completely surprised because when he left just two hours before there was no inkling that anything was going to be happening started in south dakota and it kind of built on itself you might say and it moved across central iowa and reached as far as ohio and uh, from what I've heard, there were straight line winds. That's the, the unusual thing. It is not like a tornado with the circular winds, but straight line winds up to, up to 140 miles an hour. And it wasn't just homeowners who lost property and trees. The state farmers took a terrible blow. And while the majority of the damage was crop loss, remember, Iowa is also a major center of hog production. In our system, the Nyman Ranch system, they're either pasture or bedded pens, and the bedded pens often include hoop houses. And they're a big hoop with a, a tarp, basically, over the top. They're pretty big. And uh, one farmer had eight of these, and they lost them all. And what happens when you get these straight-line winds is that you get a lift effect, much as you would with a wing on an airplane so as the as the air speeds over the top it's not not that it just blows it over it lifts it up and, and that's where the where the problem comes with those kind of structures far as i know the livestock were okay none of our farmers were hurt uh, but then you have to figure out if if the top is blown off your building you're going to have to find a place to move your livestock I asked what strategies, if any, farmers could have used that might have slowed down those 140 mile per hour winds. And Katie, every big tree, 100 year old tree was blown flat to the ground. I mean, this was unprecedented. Uh, there, nobody that I know of ever remembers anything of this magnitude of this, of this type of storm. So it's hard to prepare for something you've never seen before. And not that this couldn't happen again, but, um, you know, we've had our combination of things from floods to uh, more recently in this area, drought was a problem. So it's hard to uh, hard to know what to do, to know just what's next around the corner. Iowa is just one of many states where extreme weather events have become more common and ever more extreme. But despite the now routine experience of Iowans coping with tornadoes, flooding, drought, and derechos, 
The disaster response still feels clunky and anything but streamlined. Our most valuable agricultural land, whether in California, the Midwest, or the southern United States, is experiencing outsized weather events clearly related to climate change. And yet, there is no consistency in planning for or subsequently mitigating these disasters. James Lynch from the Cedar Rapids Gazette described some of the snags that led to a five-day delay in even calling in the State National Guard to start moving trees off of power lines and meeting the needs of people whose homes had been destroyed. There did seem to be some confusion at the local level about how much help they needed and who they should ask for help, which I don't completely understand why. Um, I mean, our mayor was saying that, you know, I don't think we need the National Guard. And I'm sure that the other 230,000 people in Cedar Rapids disagreed. Uh, um, and so there's been some sort of back and forth between local and state officials about uh, state officials saying, well, until the local officials ask for help, we can't provide help and those sorts of things. So it did seem to take a while before things were organized. I think part of the problem, Katie, was that the scope of this damage, typically uh, like with a tornado or flooding or something like that, it's uh, somewhat localized, you know, maybe one side of town or along the river. This was not just citywide, but a, a swath. I mean, the governor described it as a 70 mile wide tornado across the state. So things like restoring power, it wasn't just a matter of, you know, hooking up a couple lines. It was like hooking up the line that feeds that line, that feeds that line, that feeds that line, that feeds the line into your house. Um, you know, the governor was here on Tuesday, uh, immediately after the storm, uh, met with uh, emergency management officials, but it seemed like it did take a while before there was an organized response. One of the things that I think is real frustrating, Katie, is that as many um, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, wildfires, as we've had, it seems like the response should be much simpler, that FEMA and other agencies would have a very streamlined process for getting assistance. But we saw this, you know, after the historic flooding in 2008, that it just takes a lot of work to make application for these funds for assistance. Um, and, uh, you know, not everyone has um, those resources to do it. And it's a real challenge for a lot of residents. Uh, it just seems like we have a lot of experience as, at this. It seems like it would be a much simpler process. With so many in government either downplaying or ignoring climate change, the status quo for farmers remains to rely heavily on crop insurance rather than expecting federal funding to support new strategies to reduce the carbon footprint of industrial agriculture and alleviate the impacts of climate change. Nor has there been any concerted effort to create a more efficient process in getting money and services in place post-disaster. In the meantime, as of September 8th, according to the publication Civil Eats, farmers are still waiting for Trump to approve the $4 billion in disaster aid requested by Governor Kim Reynolds. Making plans for efficient disaster relief may not be the sexiest campaign issue, as James Lynch pointed out, but it is an issue that is long overdue for examination by legislators. Thanks for listening to The Big Food Question. 
Don't forget to subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have questions you'd like the show to answer, email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks for this episode to James Lynch, Paul Willis, and Jeff Andreasen. The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Kat Johnson, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, Luke Griffin, and Jenny Dorsey. This episode's executive producer was me, Katie Kiefer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This project is funded in part by a Humanities New York Cares grant with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal CARES Act. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.